Am I on? Yes, I am. I'm on. I, um, first of all, I want to say welcome back, Lorna. Great to see you. We've been praying for Lorna for so long. Lovely to see you again, and you've earned. Um, uh, great to see you well enough to be here. And uh, another one that we've been praying for is my daughter, Tara, who's part of my cheer squad this morning. I brought my own cheer squad over here, uh, and my friends, Brian and Sue, as well. So welcome back, darling, Good to see you here. And Brian and Sue, uh, welcome as well. I was going to um, preface this with a little bit of a promo for Kids Hope, um, but we might leave that for another time, that uh, we do desperately need people to help join our Kids Hope team. We're down to just four of us this year, and um, there's a great need in our school for more mentors to come on board and uh, to participate in that uh, program. I don't know if you saw the news as I did on the weekend of a 13-year-old boy who's um, been charged with some pretty serious crimes. I think it was down Dandenong Way or somewhere, but I was thinking as I heard that news report that here's another young teenager that's come through the cracks, that's fallen through the cracks. And our Kids Hope program is a, is a great opportunity for us uh, as our church to participate in feeding into the lives of young kids before they get to that age and to to um, be a mature uh, adult uh, inputting into their lives. Um, we've been talking about, so there it is. Thanks, Phil. We'll, we won't show any more of that, but uh, maybe we'll do another promotion of that in coming weeks. But if you're interested at all, uh, down on the back table, there's a little um, setting up there. It's a thing that, Bill, that uh, Vern made for us, and I've got some pamphlets there. If you're interested at all in helping with Kids Hope, there's some little brochures there. Uh, you can fill one of those out and send it to me uh, or get in touch with me and I'd love to have a chat with you about it. Alan, uh, let's talk about the Turning Points series. Alan began this uh, on, on New Year's Day, um, followed by Pastor Richard and then uh, Mel Alder last week, with each of them speaking about a character of the, of the Bible uh, with, who did a 180 degree, uh, an about turn, if you like, uh, in their lives and how they were affected by the story. Uh, you also heard Alan at that time speak about the very beginnings of mankind with Adam and Eve and the fall of uh, man when sin first entered the world and why there was even a need for uh, a pe person to do a, a, a turning point, to have a turning point in their life. He spoke about the, the coming of Jesus to provide the way to, that, to be able to turn back to God. And then Richard spoke about Samuel um, and how he identified with Samuel and, and how he needed to learn to talk less and listen more and act more and on God's instructions to him. And then last week, of course, Mel spoke so wonderfully about Elijah and uh, the parts of his story that related to her journey of faith. When, um, when Andrew first suggested that we do this series, my first inclination was to talk about in, uh, about the, the prodigal son. And, but then I decided I'd go and have a look through the Bible, my Bible, and see what other Bible characters there were that perhaps I could identify with. Jacob was one of those. He had lots of ups and downs. Uh, but in the end, I thought Jacob's just too complex for me to actually handle. Uh, and so thankfully for you, uh, Paul's going to speak about him next week. So you can listen to what Paul has got to say 
about Jacob. But in the finish, I did finish up going back to the prodigal son. So if we can put that next slide up, please, Phil. And this is a person who doesn't actually have a name, but it occurred to me as I prepared for this uh, talk this morning that the characters that Jesus referred to in his parables were most likely people that he'd encountered in his preparation years before he actually started his ministry for those three years from about 30 years onwards. They weren't made-up stories from him. I believe they were people he'd met with and that, had, and that the Jewish people themselves could relate to and easily identify with. And so these parables were based upon, I think, in many cases, real people, even though he doesn't give their names. So the parable of the lost or prodigal son is one that we all know so well. Uh, but let me, allow me again to read it again, and then we'll go through some of the parts of it that uh, speak specifically to me. So we're talking about uh, from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. And Jesus here had already been speaking about the lost sheep and the lost coin and about how God's grace was being evident in all those situations. So Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the land, and, that he, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the, the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was out in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brothers would come back, they replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, had, has him back safe and sound. The older brother became quite angry and refused to go in. So his father went out to him and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, 
all these years. I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes on home, you fill the cat, you kill the, the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Some of the questions we were asked as we prepared our series, uh, our talk on this series was to talk about what was going on before the change. And if we look at this, this story, we see that the father had raised two sons. And I believe we can, we can... Next slide, if you could, please, Phil. The father had raised two sons. And I believe we can conclude from the latter parts of the story that this father was a proud, was a kind, compassionate and righteous man who had a great love for his two sons. He'd done his best to raise them both to be like himself. The younger son decides to exercise self-will and selfishly asks for his share of the estate and leaves home to explore the so-called good life of sensual living, to do his own thing, to be in control of his own life. And thus begins a downward spiral with plenty of wild living well beyond his means and to the extent that he squanders all the money that he had and has now become economically bankrupt and spiritually destitute. In verses 14 to 16, we find he, he finds himself now in the depths of depravity, in a strange country that's experiencing severe drought and famine, nowhere to live, no income to support his lifestyle, and he's experiencing severe poverty and self-abasement. It gets even worse as he hires himself out to try and earn some money. And he gets to the lowest of the low jobs, which was to feed the pigs. And even there, he envies the pigs which have, are eating the scraps while he himself has, hasn't sufficient cash to be able to buy food to eat. He is indeed starving. This is my other trusted companion. We're not sure, next slide please, we're not sure what caused the change here or how, how long this, um, uh, this all goes on for, but he's at the extreme low point of his life when in verse 17 he tells us he finally comes to his senses and realises just how much his father offered, not only to he and his brother, but also to the hired servants uh, of the family. So I thought about this what is it that prompts a person, any person that is, to come to their senses? To me, it implies, in this case at least, that he's had a good upbringing, that his parents, and we only read about his father, but I'm guessing that mum has been involved in this as well, have raised him well to be able to understand what's right and what's wrong, how to treat others well and how to live a righteous life. But even more than this, to come to your senses to me suggests that his inner voice, that inner voice that's speaking to him, his conscience, 
or the prompting of the Holy Spirit has alerted him to this reminder. So he falls to his knees and resolves to return to his father and plead his repentance, realise his own unworthiness and to seek his forgiveness. Any personal pride that he's had at this stage previously is now gone. And he's ready to do even the most menial of tasks or jobs for his father because he knows that even in doing that, he'll be treated so much better than what he's been receiving in the treatment he's been receiving in this foreign country. He has, in fact, a term that I used to use in my work days was benchmarking. He's benchmarked the treatment of people in this country with the people of his father that uh, uh, that he knows so well. Next slide, please. So what's been the results and how did God use them? Well, as we read in the second part of the parable, in verses 20 to 24, he gets up, goes to his father, and we see the amazing response of his father in reconciliation of his son. The one who was lost is home again. And even as the son is still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion for him, ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The young son confesses uh, his mistakes to his father and pleads his unworthiness. He's broken and humbled. And dare I say, he's now ready and prepared to accept punishment and to do whatever his father asks of him. Yet, instead of receiving a tongue lashing from his dad, I told you so, back in my day, none of that happened. He sees his father call his servants together to order a feast and celebration and the joy his father shows that he has returned home. The parable doesn't tell us what happened afterwards following the reconciliation or how God uses him. It only gives a response of the father to his older son. Uh, The anger that the older son expresses at this favourable treatment of his younger recalcitrant son. And so we can only speculate about what ongoing change was evident in the younger son and indeed the older son too following this dramatic turn of events. So how are you affected by the story was one of the, 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 uh, the uh, areas that we had to cover as, as we looked at this, uh, each of these um, passages of scripture. As I said at the beginning, I relate personally to this parable, uh, the prodigal son, for so many reasons. So let me try to explain. I grew up in a Christian home um, with my parents and my grandmother, who lived in the house immediately behind our home in West Footscray. Uh, Each of them loved Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and displayed this love to me and to my two older brothers in the way that they lived their lives. And right from the time that I was just a little toddler, I can recall sitting on the knee of my grandma with her reading and explaining Bible stories to me. As I grew older, each Sunday I attended the Sunday school at uh, Footscray Salvation Army Church that we as a family attended. And around the age of eight, I decided to follow Jesus. I might say that part of my motivation then, I must admit, was that this would mean that I could become a a junior soldier 
Now, you know the Salvation Army, it's a very based on militaristic terms, but you have senior soldiers uh, and you have junior soldiers, that's younger kids who actually make a decision for Jesus. And when you do that, you get to learn to play a brass instrument. Yes, yes, I'm going to learn to play a brass instrument. Uh, one of been doing, been wanting to do that uh, for quite some time. My dad was a bandmaster for some time. So as I grew into my teens, I joined the local youth group, became a senior soldier, uh, proudly wore a uniform, played in the senior band, sang in the songsters. That's a, a term that they use for a choir in the salvos. Uh, also sang as part of a skipple group. So I was heavily involved in church every Sunday. And often back then, that was three times a day, three times on a Sunday, morning, afternoon and evening. I can also recall attending um, on a number of occasions the Youth for Christ meetings in those years when, as a teenager and where on one occasion I made a fresh commitment to follow Jesus. When I was 18, my parents moved from West Footscray out to East Burwood and uh, as a as a threesome, we started attending the Canterbury Salvation Army, where once again I got involved in the band and the singing and the songsters and other ways that I was involved in the church on a Sunday. I was most probably what you would call a good salvo, a good salvationist doing all the right things every Sunday. Jesus was certainly in my life and a very significant part of my life my parents, my grandmother and church friends had, just like the father in the prodigals in the parable that Jesus used, had shown me what a righteous life would look like. I struggled, however, with Bible study and prayer. I knew they were both important to me to grow spiritually. However, I managed to push that knowledge aside into the background on the basis that I was doing all the right things. I was a good salvo. What was nagging me in those years, in my early teenagers and or late teenagers and early adulthood, was some words written in a small book presented to me uh, when I left the Putzgrave Salvos, and the the words that were wrote that were written in it were, "To do God's work is good. To do His will is far greater." I struggled to understand the difference between doing his work, doing all these good things that I was doing, and doing his will. It was around this time, as a, a young adult, that I met Nolan, who was then attending um, Box Hill Salvation Army, and we started dating uh, in 1968, got engaged the following year, and married at Box Hill Salvation Army in January 1970. We just celebrated an anniversary a few weeks back. And at this time, I was working as a survey draftsman um, for the PMG. I had a steady income, and we built our first home in Heathmont in 1971. And then our two girls, Tara first, and then Cherie came along, and, and life was bubbling along for me in the early 70s. But just as my family life was developing... My spiritual life, on the other hand, was deteriorating. Um, by finding all sorts of excuses for not attending church on a Sunday, I lost contact with it. 
Nolan was doing some work to be able to um, have a break from looking after the kids and I was my job to look after the kids. So rather than going along to church, I found other excuses for not going. I'd stopped reading my Bible and praying to any extent. I was like the young son in the parable, being drawn away from the father and going off in my own direction and to do my own thing. Other things started to take more prominence in my life, including my involvement in Freemasonry, Freemasonry that my father had led me into when I was about 16 years of age. And over those years, I really struggled with my relationship with God as I continued to try to do my own thing, whilst at the same time knowing it wasn't the right thing to do. Then again, just like the young son in the parable, a dramatic event occurred in my life. I was just 28 at the time, and my father, who'd gone in for a very basic ulcer operation in hospital, died at the age of 58. It came from complications after the surgery. It wouldn't happen today, but it did then. And I was so angry, angry with the people in the, the hospital, angry with my mum for some reason, angry with all sorts of people. And here I am still trying as a, a young dad to, to keep my own family together. Next slide, please, Bill. Just two weeks after Dad died, we had the joy, Nolan and I, of her uh, giving birth to Travis, our son Travis. So I had lots of mixed emotions at this time. Sadness at the loss of my dad and anger about that, but the joy of having a, a young son coming into our family. But I also distinctly remember feeling the promptings of God, the Holy Spirit, to reconnect with him through church at that time. A bit like the young uh, son in the parable, I came to my senses. So by early the following year in 1975, we as a family had started attending Ringwood Salvation Army. And a short time later, I was uh, invited to join the band again and the songsters. And, but also, more importantly, to actually join a small Bible study group that at that time were using the Campus Crusade material, The Spirit-Filled Life. Anyone here remember that? I don't see any hands going up. Okay, a little booklet, so were, very tiny ones. And um, in one of these booklets, or in these booklets, it showed these three diagrams that are up on the, the screen. And these really, I understood the, the, the diagram for the first time. God really spoke to me through them. Let me explain them to you. The one on the left-hand side shows the cross representing Jesus outside the circle, which represented the life of a person who was sitting on the throne and in control, but Jesus was not part of their life. The second one, the middle one, shows Jesus on the throne in the life of the person who had accepted Jesus as their Lord and Saviour and that Jesus had full control of their life. And the third which was really struck me, was where I was sitting. It showed Jesus inside the life of the person, but not on the throne of that person. It was occupied by themselves. That's where I was. Through these studies that I 
and particularly these diagrams that God spoke so clearly to me, I now understood what was happening, why I was struggling so much in my relationship with God. He graciously called me to again to place Jesus on the throne of my life and to live my life through him. I responded to him that night. I prayed and confessed my sin and asked for his forgiveness, just like that prodigal son, and to, and to take again control of my life completely. And my life completely and dramatically and immediately changed. It felt like a huge load had been taken off my, my back uh, as I've been trying to live in, the, in my own strength to live a godly life. This was, for me, the 180 degree turning point in my life. I prayed that night that God would give me an unmistakable opportunity the following day to share what had happened to me. Some of you may have heard this story before. The next day at my workplace at the PMG in the drawing office, I was sitting at one of those they were high desks of those days and you had like a, a wedge with a, a drawing board on top of you basically. So I was sitting up there on a high seat sort of stuff and I had about, um, about a dozen guys that were, or people that were part of my group. I was the senior draftsman at the time. And I'd been praying, as I say, that night and that morning that God would give me an opportunity to share what had happened to me uh, with my non-Christian workmates. I spent the morning trying unsuccessfully to do that and at that time, around midday, one of the title searches, we had two of the guys that used to go up to the titles office every morning and uh, search out titles, material they'd bring back for us to use in our ma mapping work. And David came back and he stood directly in front of my desk right here and he said, Dennis, I've got something I want to ask you. Now, David... Let me tell you a bit of context. He's a shorter guy, but he, he always would go up to the title's office and come back with a joke or two that had happened in the, in, he'd heard at the, the title's office that morning. And, so, and quite often they were a pretty smutty sort of joke, so I had to sort of bear with them sometimes. But anyhow, I said, well, what is it? What's that, David? He said, this is what David said to me. Now, I'm sitting here, I've prayed this prayer, right? This is what's happening. He said, Dennis, I've... Um, what would happen if you were home at night and you heard a knock at your front door and when you opened the door, Jesus Christ was standing there? I nearly fell off the chair. My heart was thumping. <laughs> I could not believe that God had placed such a, an opportunity in front of me. And so he said... I, I, I recovered myself after a few moments and I said, um, well, David, that's exactly what happened to me last night. Now it was his turn to look shocked. <laughs> he said, oh, you're not supposed to say that. And I said, well, how about you tell me what I'm supposed to say and then I'll tell you what happened to me last night. And he said, you would go back into your house, find a Bible come back to the front door and say, Jesus Christ, this is your life. Boom, boom. 
That's the joke. Do you remember the series, This Is Your Life? Being on TV, it still comes on every now and now. That was the joke. Nothing smutty, nothing hard about it at all. But it gave me such an opportunity then to go on and speak to him about what had happened to me that night before and how I had invited Jesus to become Lord of my life. Who says God doesn't have a sense of humour, eh? Final slide, please, Bill. So how does this story speak to you or move you? From that moment on, God changed my life and transformed my life completely. Uh, one of the things that they talked about in the um, little booklets was spiritual breathing, um, using verses such as 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. To actually exhale, to actually ask God, what is it in my life that's not right? And then confess that before him. That became a habit for me, and it still is today. As I humbled myself before God, asking him to reveal which parts of my life should go and confessed this before him, my life changed. I had a lot of baggage to get rid of in those days and it took quite some years, including renouncing Freemasonry, I might say. But God so graciously showed me little by little those parts of my life that dishonoured him and allowed me to remove them from my life. I'm still a work in progress, uh, I might add. Some years later, in 1987, uh, Nolan and I came to the decision to change church, to move from the Salvation Army at, at uh, Ringwood to here at Mitcham Baptist, mostly for the sake of our young family at the time um, because there weren't so many kids their age at that church. And we started attending here all those years ago. We've been obviously so welcomed as part of this church and blessed by good Bible teaching and the fellowship of other believers. In this, some ways, as I say, these ups and downs in my life of why I related to the life of Jacob. It, as I said, uh, he's a bit too complex for me. Uh, if you come next Sunday, Paul will give you an outcome, an outline of Jacob. Uh, I'm sure he'll do a great job of that. But that as I say, was my, my major turning point, my true conversion, if you like, to, to knowing Jesus as my Lord. I hope, perhaps the band might like to come up now as I finish off. I just hope and pray that this testimony this morning might, and in the days to come might help you in your own spiritual walk with God. Maybe you can look at those three circles that are up on the screen again now and identify which one best represents you. Are you in the circle where Jesus is still outside the circle? He's not in your, on the throne of your life. Or are you like where I was? Um, Jesus is part of my life, but he's not actually in the centre of my life. Or are you living the life that Jesus wants you to live with him in full control? I'll be happy to chat with you afterwards as we conclude to discuss, discuss any more thoughts with you. Let me just pray before we conclude. Loving Father God, thank you so much for speaking so clearly to me 
all those years ago for graciously offering me your forgiveness and for helping me to share my story this morning. I pray this may be a blessing and encouragement to the others who've been watching and listening and that they too may experience your great love for themselves today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you.